live. Are we live? We are. Awesome. This is another episode of Craft Brewed Agile. We're back at it again. Uh, day drinking uh, <laughs> starting to become a habit with these shows, Todd. What are we doing? <laughs> live. Oh, no. are we live? We are. Yeah. Awesome. I this is another show. episode of Craft Brewed this Agile. Is like, We're back this at is it again. New... All right, there we go. Now that's off. So there's a delay. So now the listeners know or the viewers know there's a delay. Um, you got to hear a little reverb. But yeah, we're back to day drinking. Uh, Todd and I, we're, we're back. We've brought a um, good friend of ours, Gunther Verheyen. Gunther, how are you, sir? I'm fine. Thank you, Ryan. Hello, Todd. Hello. So I'm sure if those of you coming over from Agile for Humans, you've heard me talk about Gunther's book, uh, The Scrum Pocket Guide. I actually probably have it on the shelf behind me right now. It's usually at my side. Um, Gunther's written one of the, I think it's a beautiful companion book to the Scrum Guide. It was the book that I used to help me understand the why behind what we were, what we were doing many years ago. Um, it's one of the best on the, on the market. I hope you guys check that out. If you haven't actually checked out Gunther's book in the past, it's wonderful. But he's also known as the Scrum Caretaker. We're going to get into that in a little bit as well. But first, Todd, you and I are going to be sporting the beers today for Craft Brewed Agile. I got a fun one for you. I have a, another local. I'm trying to stay like Indiana proud, right? I'm doing, I'm doing the exact same thing, and I cannot wait to tell you what I'm drinking today. So I'm drinking Bad Elmer's Porter from Upland Brewing out of Bloomington, Indiana, home of Indiana University, where my wife graduated from. So uh, yeah, another Indiana beer. It's a nice porter. Really looking forward to drinking this one. What do you have, Todd? Are you ready? I can't wait. I have a maple coconut lemon milkshake IPA. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's right. All of that in this can, uh, made by Tired Hands, uh, which is just outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which is not too far from me. You are definitely taking a nap after this show. <laughs> yeah. And I think that the day drinking thing caused that reverb earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Yeah. That, uh, All right. So the that beer does, that does sound like a very strange collection of ingredients. <laughs> it sounds like like a almost like a an ice cream sundae with a bunch of toppings, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and right. I, your your beer looks like a little bit like you would look like a, a Guinness. You know? It's very dark. It is very, very dark. Very tiny foam. And I have a, I have a, um, my, my, uh, beer glass today says save water, drink beer. So Perfect. I'm, I'm really pulling out all the stops. We're recording on a Friday afternoon. So it is. And so we're super excited to have Gunther here. Todd, yeah. you have the question to get us started, like the, the tee off. I Let's do. Go. And we might, you know, as with everything, I always say like, uh, Gunther, we can give you a little bit of time uh, to think about this because I've prepared how I'm going to answer it, but. Um, if you had to change oh, so, your name, should I, have a, should I have a question? Yes. And then already an answer in mind. That's, that's, that's pressuring me. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I know what it would be for myself. But so, Gunther, if you had to change your name, what would you change it to, and why would you change it to that? My name. I've never considered changing my name. Um, Maybe something that is more easily to pronounce for sort of, let's say, international people. Uh, are we say, are, do we say it wrong? No, sort of. Sort of? Not, not completely. <laughs> so what's the proper pronunciation? <laughs> if you would say it like, I live in Belgium in Antwerp. Yeah. 
And, and, and I don't know whether you know Belgium, but we are a very, very strange country. So we have three official languages. Okay. So we, in, in the northern part of Belgium, we speak Dutch. So I'm from the northern part. So I obviously speak Dutch. Sort of, it sort of sounds like the same language they speak in the Netherlands, but it's sort of officially Dutch. In the southern part of Belgium, we speak French, and there's a little part of Belgium that speaks German. Do you know how we solve that? <laughs> how? By speaking English. <laughs> so we've got three official languages and we overcome that by speaking a fourth one <laughs> perfect so but if, if i would if i would pronounce my name the way we say it here in uh, the northern uh, part of belgium it would be gunter verheyen gunter verheyen i'm glad we have this recorded gunter. and it's going to be on youtube because yeah. the next time i see you i'm gonna make sure that i absolutely properly pronounce and it correctly the, the, the difficulty is that the fact and i think we're sort of the only people on the planet that have this soft g so we don't say gunter of whatever we say gunter gunter <laughs> so a, a name that would sound a little bit more international would be would be i think uh welcome given my uh the way that my work took off sort of last 10 years yeah. <laughs> I've, I've got about as plain of a name as it gets right todd miller uh, that's my, my wife yep. always says that it's a terribly unexciting last name <laughs> <laughs> well my name is is nothing special either it, it has a sort of german sound to it but even the gunter even in germany where they would say a uh, gunter or gunter uh they would also have difficulties with the soft g and even my uh our fellows in the netherlands who officially speak dutch too even they have problems so on the other hand, you could say, oh, it makes it also very special. Yeah. And, and when I go to speak on events internationally, I can, I can always use that uh, sort of to buy me some credit with people or whatever. So I, let's say I go to Poland. I can't speak a Polish name either. Like, <laughs> I can't say your name. You can't say my name. We're quit now. We're even. I like it. So that, that works a lot. But I, I, I couldn't really say how it should be. Let's let let's not go for a name with something with scrum in. <laughs> I've already enough scrum on my mind <laughs> to not have it in my name. Yeah. Todd, what would you change it to? What what would you, how would you change yours? So I'm on a I'm on a super goofy Friday afternoon um, mood. So I would absolutely change my name to Nighthawk. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Why you might ask for no other reason than how awesome it would be to be oh referred to as Nighthawk. Okay. I am not it's, calling it's, you Nighthawk. <laughs> it's not some sort of superhero name, is it? No. No. <laughs> no. Okay. Yeah, because I'm into graphic novels a lot. Oh. I'm, I'm a huge Batman fan. Oh, and, Batman's great. Yeah, and and the funny thing is, there's a it's sort of sort of sun. It's uh, used to be Robin. Is now Nightwing. Yeah, and my son by not, probably not by accident. I don't know how he's much into Nightwing, so we feel like, yeah, I'm Batman, you're Nightwing. Very nice, <laughs> Nighthawk. I never, Todd. I, I wouldn't have. Oh, how about you, Ryan? <laughs> I you so know what? Would you would you then be Todd Nighthawk Miller or just Nighthawk Miller? Just I I would even remove my last name. I would just be referred just to Nighthawk. as Nighthawk. Maybe Plus, throw like an emoji in it. Just to be super creative. Okay. Oh. So the, the world, the world, the world can now address you just as Nighthawk. <laughs> That's good. Cool. Oh man, I don't know why that's so funny to me. Nighthawk. 
Can you top oh. that, Ryan? No, I don't even want to follow it. I, uh, <laughs> I'm, I kind of, I'm okay with my name. Like I, so the last name Ripley is difficult because growing up, you always heard, well, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and then Matt Damon did that horrible movie. And then the I get called the talented Mr. Ripley. Um, mm. I don't know. What would I change my name to? I, I'm good with it. Like, I, I don't know. I think I'm okay. Like, I would just leave it alone, I think. Yeah. But Nighthawk is a great <laughs> So, you know, we, we, we usually deliberately start off with a question that's a little bit silly and a little bit something to, to, to talk about. But the, the reason why we asked you that, that question, Gunther, is we widely view you as the scrum caretaker. And so we're, we're very interested in um, what, you, what you personally mean by that, your mission and what you're out to um, accomplish, yeah. so. Well, I, I personally look at myself as a scrum caretaker. Awesome. Not just the, and I'm, because I'm not the only scrum taker around. I'm just a scrum caretaker. And, and, and the origins of it was actually when, uh, it's almost four years ago, it's probably not worth a celebration, but still four years ago, I, I decided to sort of um, stand on my own two feet and, and uh, end my exclusive partnership with Ken, Ken Schreiber and Scrum the Talk. So I'd been working with Scrum the Talk since 2013, um, doing stuff like, you know, uh, assessments, exams and certifications and, and courseware and so on. And, and then try to work with beautiful people like yourselves across the world. And then I wanted to be on my own two feet. And then the funny thing is, so on things like, you know, that LinkedIn, you have to sort of give yourself a title. And, you know, I, so, so when I left uh, uh, consulting back in 2013 to work with Ken and partner with Ken, I established my one person company in Belgium to work with Ken and Scrum the Talk. And uh, in 2016, that became sort of my, my main activity or my exclusive activity. And I was like, what should I call myself? And I always think it's quite silly to call yourself CEO if you're a one person company, because I'm both the CEO, I'm also the CFO. I'm, I'm not into technology, so I'm not a CIO, but I'm going to do all of the marketing. So that was sort of silly. So I figured, let's see what I think, what is it that I like to do? What is it that I think I do? I'm not really sure. And then I came up with this idea, Scrum Caretaker. And it was sort of intuitively, it's more like accidentally. There's a, I've been through a number of sort of accidental events in my life. So not having goals and not having ambitions is what brought me the farthest, <laughs> which is quite funny. And, and I, I just, by then I called myself Scrum Caretaker because um, it reflects caring for Scrum, but also Caretaker has this, human thing in it. So that human side of Scrum, the people side of Scrum. And then I, I, over the past four years, using that name, I discovered what it is I truly like to be. And I, I found out for myself. So at some point in time, I figured out what is, what is so important for me. And it's always the same. It's people, always the same. And people have been pointing that out to me since I, I remember 2007 already a long time ago, somebody saying that to me, I'm like, yeah, it's always about people. And I feel that 
the people aspect of Scrum is, is so under-highlighted. So it turned into a little bit of a personal ambition by calling myself Scrum caretaker. I grew into this idea. I want to use Scrum to help people and to actually what I call humanize the workplace. I've been calling it a lot rehumanizing the workplace. Um, but that <laughs> sort of has the idea in it that once it was humanized, it has to be humanized again. And, and I'm not too sure that that was really the case. So Scrum Caretaker for me is about caring for Scrum, which means caring for people and caring for how Scrum is being used by people, potentially in negative sense, how Scrum is being sort of imposed on people. Um, because I feel like in the first 15, let's say 20, almost 25 years of Scrum, the focus with Scrum has been a lot on, let's, let's call it sort of the technical, technical aspect of Scrum, building great products. And we have achieved a lot. It's amazing. So only the shift just from the fact that we have helped the world move away from projects to products is in itself already a huge achievement. The fact that we've moved away from um, at least on, let's say, sort of the development side of things, moved away from individuals and, and a lot of silos into cross-functional, uh, cross-fertilization, at least multi-learning and so on. That aspect is huge. But still, I feel like Scrum is still so much promoted, almost too technically, to develop great products. And that's a huge achievement. And I feel like if we focus on the people aspect more and and like we do professionalism within Scrum, then if you're like a really a development professional and we give you the room with Scrum to really also develop yourself, you would like to develop great products. And by having the opportunity to develop great products, I think that as a person, a, an individual, a professional, you would also feel like, hey, I'm developing as a person. So um, developing great products, as a person being respected and having freedom, having the room to self-organize within the boundaries of Scrum, they reinforce each other. So I want to sort of create a little bit of a balance between products and people because we've been focusing a lot on products and I feel far not enough on the people aspect of Scrum. So I'm not forgetting the aspect of product development, but also that sort of idea to develop people in a way. So, and that's for me in Scrum Caretaker and humanizing the workplace, I think is for me very essential. And that's in Scrum Caretaker for me. So, so Gunther, a lot of Scrum Masters will watch this. They will, um, they're going to hear that and that might be a new idea for them initially. This may not be, because um, I, I, I think you're right. A lot of the practice has, has been on the, the technical side, the, the mechanical side. What does it look like uh, when you see, perhaps in your own practice or when you're working with Scrum Masters, what does it look like when you see the human side emphasized? Like, what are the, the stances that a Scrum Master takes? What are the actions? Like, how, how have you seen that manifest into uh, real practices that a Scrum Master can use? Or how have you seen that play out uh, in, in everyday Scrum Mastery? Well, the, 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 the first thing that you just pointed out to me this uh, quite a while ago, a couple of years ago, somebody asked me what does Scrum Caretaker do? You know, people always want to know. And I was explaining some stuff and, and a lot of the stuff that I'm explaining to you guys now. Um, 
And then it occurred to me that, oh my God, it's just sort of Scrum Caretaker is not too different from Scrum Master. <laughs> it's, it's sort of what you would hope Scrum Masters do too. <laughs> Help people implement Scrum better, uh, find better practices, get it integrated into a company and so on, with a lot of uh, attention, uh, being very attentive to uh, the people aspect. So a while ago, I was, I was working with a company in the Netherlands so I live in Belgium, but I, most of my professional work is happening in the Netherlands for whatever reason. Um, and I was doing coaching within the company, so working with a number of a number of teams. And there were uh, I was hired as a really sort of Scrum whatever coach. I don't care about titles too much. I think they officially called me Scrum expert coach, whatever, whatever they need to call me. Um, and I was working with teams. Visiting teams, always sort of on demand, asking teams to uh, uh, to invite me, doing joining them in sprint reviews, sprint retrospectives, sprint plannings, and so on. And there was one of the existing agile coaches around. He was uh, joining me, asked me, "Can I be present too?" And and after the session, he came up to me, and and he was sort of surprised that I was focusing on people and how they interact and in a way how the people in the room, the team, how they were using the Scrum artifacts. So I was not focusing, it seems, I was pointed out to me that I was not focusing on the artifacts themselves or all the meeting and so on. I was focusing on how people were relating to each other, interacting, how they were using Scrum in a way. And first of all, it was scary that he found that a surprising focus because that's a natural thing to me. It's not about Scrum. It's about how people use Scrum, how they employ Scrum, how much they get out of Scrum. And, and that's for me very important. It's about the people in Scrum. How are they enacting their accountabilities? How are they um, putting their accountabilities together to, as a group to really excellent stuff? So, and that's, that's for me a very important focus. Relationships between people, interactions between people, and in a way how the Scrum artifacts and events and accountabilities are only enablers for richer conversations. And that is a very important focus for me. Well, we're glad that you're taking that focus because I, I think it's really important um, uh, not not just for Scrum, but for the world as a whole, right? And mm -hmm. it's interesting that you said that somebody was a bit surprised that of how much it is, uh, um, how much you take the stance of looking at the interactions between people. Because I've had similar conversations. Um, yeah, um, yeah, and it, it was just it was just surprised because it's sort of I don't know whether it's a typical HL coach or not, but he was focused a lot on. On, on, on their practices and how their product backlog look like and is it estimated and whatever. I'm like, ah, I <laughs> I'm going to say something strange. It's sort of, I couldn't care less. I, I want to see how they use those things in their advantage to their sort of benefit. Yeah, and it's amazing how on like sometimes on like a, a consulting arrangement like that, uh, the expectation almost of an agile coach is make us really good at estimating and story points. <laughs> right? yeah. And it's like, you, you know, that's really uh, like the least important thing we should get. We should, we should work on setting these boundaries so that people can self-organize within them. Yeah. So, um, 
Yeah. Now, the, the, the sort of strange, can I say that, enlightenment for me of that conversation with that coach was, oh, I had never sort of actively, explicitly thought about it for myself, just what I've been doing all those years. And that reminded me again of a very, sort of the, one of the most difficult periods I went through in my, can I call it, sort of career with Scrum, is uh, back in 2007, so I started this thing back in 2003, sort of rolled into this almost by accident. So we started with something that was called extreme programming by then. Yeah. And then afterwards used Scrum to sort of uh, organize things a little bit uh, tighter in a way, if you want to put it like that. And it all went sort of smoothed, eager people. It was back in 2003. So in a way we, we didn't use the name Scrum too much because that sort of still frightened people. <laughs> I don't, they thought it was a virus like you have now. Um, so we didn't use the name Scrum, it, not even the term Agile, that didn't make sense to people. So we called all sort of things. Couldn't care less because we were doing great stuff. So for the next three to four years, I've, I've worked with a sort of pretty stable team. At least the core of the team was sort of very stable. Eager people, they just did stuff. Extreme programming practices, test-driven development pair program. We did continuous integration multiple times a day. We did performance testing overnight. It all went smooth. I didn't have to push people, direct people. It just, a lot of things happened. And then in 2007, so having done that for three, four years, um, suddenly changing environments, working with other people, other teams and so on. And, and it seems that, let's say, that eagerness was somewhat lower, um, maybe intrinsic motivation, less different environments. And, and I suddenly found myself facing the difficulty of having to explain stuff that I never had to explain before. Like, like why pair programming and why test-driven development is important and why the sprint review is important. I never had to explain that. We just did it and it went smoothly. So, and suddenly I found myself, oh my God, I, there's a lot of stuff that I do sort of naturally, organically, intuitively, that I now have to explain. And it was also a lesson that once you have to do that, you already lose part of the potential. Having to convince people, having to sort of making the sort of the implicit, explicit, always already loses some potential. And that was sort of that enlightenment again, that if I have to uh, start working with coaches, because I turned into sort of coach of the coaches at that, at that company, a large company. And if I have to tell coaches that they should focus on people and interactions and, and see Scrum only as a foundation within which that should happen, I already lose part of the potential, I think, of the power. And it's always very difficult. Yeah. So, Gunther, how do you get that back? Because I think the majority of us will run into this situation where we're working with other coaches, we're trying to be a good mentor, maybe a good trainer. And because and, I think you're right, the second that we have to do convincing, and, and again, it boggles my mind that we have to convince people about XP. You know, again, extreme programming explained by Kent Beck probably one of the most foundational books that, that anyone working on products today can read, especially in the software space. But like once we go into kind of that space of convincing, like, is there a recovery step? Is there a way to 
have you found ways to kind of shift back to invitation that that have worked pretty cleanly or or at that point are we at a kind of a standstill situation um i i have no sort of magical solutions whatever what sure. what does in a way help me is to always help people like coaches managers whatever try to get them away from looking at individuals and even judging teams and so on uh, sort of in in a in a in a very typical way to say it, move away from managing people to managing the environment it's what i always say a lot of what we do in a way tries on what we call typically intrinsic motivation sure i always tell people i can't open up your skull and pour in some intrinsic motivation or plug in a usb cable and download some intrinsic motivation that's not intrinsic motivation right intrinsic means in you what you can do is try to create an environment in which people find their intrinsic motivation again where people can get re-energized again by not pressuring them um, the difficulty is that even if you get at some point and that should be also focus of scrum masters for me scrum masters in a way are in that sense also managers of an environment because you know peer accountability is scrum nobody controls the other accountabilities so manage an environment try to establish an environment in which people hopefully find their intrinsic motivation again and and create help creating foster an environment in which people if they don't get motivated by that work and being able to organize their own work maybe go so far that they find for themselves that hmm, maybe i should not be here maybe i should be doing something that i really love to do you know it, it makes me think of one of the principles of the the manifesto of agile software development um you know, build projects around motivated individuals, give them the environment and support they need and trust them to get the job done. Yeah, yeah, but that, that still reflects building environment around motivated individuals that sort of starts with motivated individuals, giving the large scale um, use and adoption of, of, of Agile and, and Scrum. That brings us to the situation that I had to go to back in 2007 from working with really motivated individuals that I didn't have to now working with other people where for whatever reason they are told or instructed or whatever to do a scrum. And that's, and that's, and that's pretty hard work, but it's still the same. It's, it's, it does um, go back to that principle of the Agile Manifesto. Focus on the environment, create an environment, manage it, foster whatever you want to call it, an environment in which people have room to self-organize within the boundaries. And, and if working against the idea of producing a potential releasable version of product sprint after sprint after sprint and giving the room and the space to do that, if that doesn't motivate you, then maybe you're in the wrong place. But still then, it's not still not up to me to, to make that decision. We want to create an environment in which people make that decision for themselves. And Gunther, what you're what you're saying here just really resonates with me because um, I've learned similar lessons, especially around trying to bring in a best practice, right? Mm -hmm. um, and where I thought that something like uh, continuous integration, pair programming, test-driven development, and I would I remember coming out of one job where I was having a similar experience, 
to you and then saying, but then I felt like I was on the, on the defense saying, but this works so good for the team that I was just on. I don't, and it was uh, almost like uh, I, I couldn't comprehend it at first. So I think you, you, you put it a lot more eloquently than, than, than I can uh, when you say you lose that potential and then you start to have that feeling like you're almost becoming, I know we've heard that evangelical about something and you're pushing these practices in. So, yeah. And, 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 and still thought I I'm sort of astonished a little bit by um, God, sometimes a sort of lack of almost directiveness of scrum master. Yeah, but I'm a scrum master. I can't do mm -hmm. anything. I'm like, Oh my God, there's a, there's a yes. huge, huge, um, variety of possibilities between not doing anything and being some sort of instructor telling people what to do on a daily basis. There's so many things that, so I, I, I miss some sort of, some sort of forcefulness of Scrum Master sometimes, some sort of belief from which you act. And that, that is music to Ryan and I's ears, right, Ryan? I love it. I, uh, yeah. You know, I, I think it's the the lack of scrum masters taking action, which is which is why we end up writing why we wrote the book. You know, I, I think it really um, we're trying to give scrum masters options. It, it's almost like, and I and I hate to say it this way, but I I kind of feel this way at the same time. It's like you know the our, fixing your scrum was really like a scrum master's permission to go and be a powerful change agent and servant leader in an organization. Because I think the current batch of or like this generation or what, I don't, I don't even know the right way to, to describe the, the time we're in, but just, it seems like they needed that, that impetus, that permission to, to go out and do powerful things. It doesn't mean command and control. It means, you know, taking care of your scrum teams. And sometimes that takes direct action that, that so many people were just reluctant to take. Yeah, but it's the difficulty I see with a lot of scrum masters, and I, and I sort of feel for a lot of them. It's not it's not just taking care of your scrum team; it's taking your care of your scrum team within the organization. And and that means, like like the scrum guide says, sort of trying to help the organization um, rethink their interactions with the scrum team. Uh, so you're not just a change agent within the scrum team, but also within the organization. That often means that, and I, I know what that means, being seen as a pain all the time. <laughs> because you're yeah. doubting stuff, you're questioning stuff, you're... And, and, that's, and, and one thing that helped me a lot is over time, find out that all people, teams and organizations often need time to absorb stuff. So you could go in as a scrum master, get all these ideas. Now be careful in injecting too many ideas in a shorter time span. Give people to absorb them, try to try to help them to go through them, and then maybe launch another idea or suggest or whatever, ask some open things. But what I see is a lot of scrum masters are in scrum masters are employed by the organization. I don't know any organization that over a longer period of time that accepts, even embraces, not just tolerates, but even invites scrum masters to be those nasty pains by challenging stuff, by asking questions, doubting stuff, triggering people, being that sort of, so, and, and so that's why I see a lot of scrum masters sort of just pull back to only working with the scrum team and they forget 
to change the organization. So what I said about a year ago when I described what I call the illusion of agility, you know, more agile teams does not make a more agile organization. But for whatever reason, that's what a lot of organizations do. You know, this agile thing like Scrum, whatever, it's for the teams only. Whoa, whoa, whoa. you can't introduce Scrum without seriously impacting existing procedures, structures, departmental structures, and so on. But if, if challenging those structures is not accepted from the Scrum Masters, then you have a problem. But if as a Scrum Master, I'm being paid by that same organization and it's not being accepted for me being that sort of <laughs> continuous pain in the, you know, then it's going to be difficult. So that's, that's that, that, that's, a difficulty in being a really great scrum master within an organization. Do you think that if we told leadership teams up front that a scrum master is supposed to be that, that person who, who pushes and prods and helps shift the organization in ways that they may not like initially, do you think there would be fewer scrum implementations in the world if we were really upfront about that? Imagine, to, to put it in a silly way, that we make them sign a contract to agree yeah. that that's going to happen. You'll probably have a lot less Scrum uh, adoptions, yeah. yeah but it's Look, Luckily, we don't do that, by the way. Yeah, I mean, it, it's in a way, it's good. And in a way, it, it just it, it kind of gets bizarre that, you know, when we adopt Scrum, it's exactly as you say, Gunther, that, that we are agreeing that this is how we're going to work and that this is the you know, we've, we've hired this change agent to come in and, and, and fundamentally adjust the way we're working. Um, and then when they do it, it's not welcome. And then they re, they revert back, but then these same leaders will come back often and say, well, why aren't we getting twice the work in half the time? What happened? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and it has to do with a lot of aspects. Um, like, like organizational change, or changing the organization, if you want. So what I like a lot about how we define Scrum is that we do not say how an organization should look like. We only say how Scrum works. And we're sort of agnostic with regards to existing structures, existing titles, existing roles, and so on. We describe three accountabilities and how Scrum works. And what I like a lot about us, let's say Scrum people, is that we have this sort of naivety built in <laughs> yeah. by saying we are not going to say how you should reorganize around Scrum. But we do express the idea that it's probably going to be very difficult without reorganizing around Scrum. Like I said, by the end of my, my little book, uh, organizations should sort of re-emerge their structures around Scrum. Now, that's a little bit naive because a lot of organizations think that they can introduce Scrum without changing around that. And as we don't have explicit instructions that they should reorganize and how they should reorganize, they think they can do without it. So that there's a, there's a little duality and ambiguity. And I, I, I like that because I feel like we can't say how every sort of organization should look like. We should say how Scrum works. And we hope, and that was a naive thing in Scrum, we would hope that by making problems, impediments, whatever, by making them visible, putting them on the table, making them surface, emerge at retrospective reviews and so on, that people would tackle them. Maybe we have underestimated human nature 
um, because a lot of people think that wiping them under the carpet again is better <laughs> ignoring them or blaming scrum best scrum doesn't do much than just reveal those things um, still that's not still not a reason to go for uh, adding sort of let's say uh, organizational instructions to scrum let's keep focusing on helping people get more out of scrum and helping them really embrace transparency because transparency is a beautiful thing everybody loves it as long as we reveal that things are going as we expected them to go. <laughs> Once transparency is about, oh, this is not in line with our thinking or our expectations, then suddenly as transparency becomes a lot more difficult, it seems. You know, it's yeah. interesting you say that. Ryan and I had a conversation earlier this week in regards to transparency, I guess you could say, but in talking about how... for. Um, Every, every new product development effort in traditional organizations, they start out with that six box, red, yellow, green. When you mm -hmm. start a product development effort in any organization, why is it initially marked green? It, like, that's the most uncertain time of anything, right? But mm -hmm. it'll be green for eight months and then it'll turn yellow and then red immediately. And so mm -hmm. I think that... Um, People like transparency as long as you were saying they get the news that they want with it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what's really difficult about being a scrum master is you can raise a level of transparency and, and this kind of goes to what you were saying earlier, but um, you have to know when to pull the lever and when to, and, and, and how to increase it, right? Because I've made the mistake of bringing too much transparency too fast. Mm -hmm. And people just can't digest it. They can't digest the information that they're seeing and they freak out because of it. Yep. So it's very much like, um, I'm just relating it to the, how Brian and I were just having this big conversation yeah. about why is everything starting green? But I, I remember uh, having really great conversations with risk and quality and ISO auditors. Hmm. And they were like so happy with Scrum because... Um, what we did as Scrum Master or as a product owner or with the product owners, at every sprint review, we made the real actual progress transparent. Also, if it wasn't good, also if it meant that suddenly our forecast was blown, we still made that transparent because that's the only way to make sure that for yourself, you can adapt, you can, and early on, you can still make changes. You can do lots of things to sort of get sort of on track again with working towards your goals or what you're trying to achieve. And risk and, and ISO auditors were sort of amazed because in general, what happens, what you just described. 90% of the, of the work, all lights are green, everybody's pretending as if, and that's only the week before you have to go live, everything just turns red. And there's no time to adjust anything. There's no time to adapt. There's no time to change. You can't take any additional measures. But by really living that iteratively, incrementally, there's so much you can do. Yeah. You know, Todd had a really cool insight. Uh, and and I, I think it was a few weeks ago, we did this meetup uh, online with, uh, I think it was up with the Agile Detroit or the Scrum Detroit group, you know, Rob Kalman's group. And uh, you know, so we, we were just talking about empiricism and how empiricism is what we're really after. You know, Scrum is a great way to get to empirical process control. Um, and so that's why we love Scrum so much. But, you know, seeing that even in the companies we're working in, transparency seems to be going okay. 
and the inspections seem to be going okay. Like we're getting to the point to where we're seeing people are acting transparently, the inspections are happening, but in the face of bad news or in the face of an inspection that, that doesn't go the way we think, adaptation just stops. And we're actually starting to see, you know, and, and I thought Todd's insight was brilliant here. We're seeing the adaptations just stutter and, and, and actually people refusing to adapt to things especially if they do not like the outcome of transparency and inspection. You've seen that as well, Gunther? Yeah, I've seen it. And, and even that, that's even a very sort of almost nice example that you give, Ryan. I've seen much worse. So uh, a while ago, it's, I think almost a year ago, I wrote about, called a blog note of mine, I called inspection without adaptation is pointless in Scrum. It's an act of futility. Yep. Because it, that's even a positive situation where you have transparency being given, inspections being done and so on. I see a lot of organizations that implement Scrum. They sort of, you know, follow the process, sort of at every event they, they inspect, they don't call it the inspection, but they, they talk about what they should be inspecting at that point in time. And then they feel like, yeah, it's over now. I, we've looked at what we should be looking at. So I, I, I told them, yeah, you know what? Scrum is all about Scrum is a definition of being agile, right? So Scrum is all about agility. Agility, agile in its most bare uh, definition would be being adaptive, being able to adapt. So that's what Scrum trying to give you. So if you're not using Scrum for reasons of adaptation, you're not using Scrum, you will never have the benefits. And I was, was more focused on the idea that a lot of people use the Scrum events only for status reporting, logging, updating a system, uh, like I know some sort of electronic tool that people have to use. But as long as they don't use the information and that they don't join at some event to look for an adaptation, they're not really using or they're not really employing Scrum. So in Scrum inspection without, adap without adaptation, that's just plainly pointless. It mm -hmm. makes no sense. Scrum is what I call all Scrum events should be what I call forward-looking. They should help all attendants look towards the future. Not inspection is sort of about the past. They should all start with maybe the past, but at least go look at the future. So the Scrum events are designed to be forward-looking, regardless of how they are called. And I know review retrospective that seems to be about the past, but it's not. It's actually about the future. So even if they use the events to look at the past, that's only the start. It should be about the future. So it should be, and again, work for Scrum Masters. Help your people, your teams, your organizations, your stakeholders, your managers, whatever. Help them see how every event is about. Should get your eyes on the future, not just the past. Yeah, and I, I couldn't agree more. And I think this idea about failing to adapt, you know, I, I think of a more, you know, um, let's say, uh, 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 the dark side of that, right, where, when, and when I say that, I mean, I've, I've been in a few sprint reviews where I'm sitting and thinking to myself, why are we spending money on building this? This doesn't make sense to build this, we should not be continuing to spend money on this. And it's just drop we but we need to finish the plan right? Mm. But you're not getting any return on investment from what you're building and it just doesn't make sense. Um, so that is an example of where you 
you're getting information, but you're failing to adapt. And the adaptation there is a, is a very hard decision that someone needs to make, right? Yes. Um, a lot of these two uh, are, um, uh, you know, if you look at something like the sprint review, right? Um, if you're continuing to go to sprint reviews and um, you have a lot of lack of engagement from your stakeholders in those sprint reviews, like why well, you have to question that, right? Because yes. you could be making changes uh, and, and, and adapting your approach in, in a false sense, right? You're lacking transparency. I, I can just think of a million examples where, where I've seen the, the failure to adapt. So, some small, some big, like we shouldn't be funding this. We have five more, more $5 million more on this, but there's no reason to spend it, right? Yeah. So. And, and, and in, in even, even that's, that's already a sort of big example, very important one, but sprint review in my experience is sort of the most underused or underutilized event of Scrum anyhow. That's why you all say it's not a demo. Mm -hmm. And even if I say to people, a demo is not even part of a sprint review, that's not even the spirit of Scrum, because that's sort of the obvious responsibility. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, I know it's sprint review, not sprint demo, but we still do a demo as part of the sprint review. No, no, demo is still one-way communication. It's not demo, it's not even a collaborative, it's, not, it's still far away from a collaborative working meeting. So let alone the idea that sprint review is about at least with all people around the table at the peer level, stakeholders, development team, and product owner, as facilitated by Scrum, but those three parties mainly, um, aligning on priorities for at least the next sprint or the next couple of sprints based on all the information that those three parties bring in. Live, in-person communication during the sprint, sort of through the product owner in general, but at the sprint review, great occasion to get all those people together and, and have this really built, grow this really shared mutual understanding of what are we doing here? Why are we doing it? Oh, what should we do now? Based on all sorts of changes. Yeah. So sprint review is the most underutilized event of Scrum anyhow. Not just with regards to adapting, but just event as a whole. Yeah. I wonder if all of that stems from like a, a serious misunderstanding of the word transparency. You know, I think a lot of people believe that transparency means that we made something visible. And, I, and I, but it's far more than that, right? Isn't it really whole team and whole group understanding, which, yeah. re which requires conversation and exploration and sharing and refining yes. and, and, a, yeah. and experimentation and, and so much more than just putting a, a product backlog on the wall or a product vision in an email. I mean, it, and, I, and I wonder if a lot of these things stem from just that fundamental misunderstanding of how transparency is really achieved. Yeah, there's two aspects of transparency. That's, that's certainly one of them. A misunderstanding of what it means to be, to be transparent. And it's not just transparency through the artifacts, but also how you deal with it and how you give that. Um, but there's also this, I think since, since sort of Scrum stuff, started being so widely adopted, there's this, and it drives me crazy, this total abuse of the term transparency. So what I, what I also wrote about recently, transparency does not mean that every single piece of information should be available to every individual within or outside of the organization. That's not transparency. Transparency in Scrum serves the process of inspection and adaptation. So all necessary, all essential information, part of 
Scrum development product, product backlog should be available, but also not just available, feasible, understandable, readable, should be able to explain it. It doesn't mean that everything has to be feasible and available to everybody. So, and that's also a little bit of a problem that the, the term transparency, and that's sort of very strange, has become blurred because people abuse it. Oh yeah, everybody, just maybe a silly example, uh, within organization transparency means that everybody needs to know about all of the other people's salaries. And I'm like, that's not transparency. What, unless that serves some process of inspection and adaptation. But that's just sort of often silliness. You know, so it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting you say this, Gunther, because I also see that how much um, confusion there is between what we mean by transparency and what we mean by openness. <laughs> I, I feel like those lines really get blurred, right? There's yeah. a difference. There's a difference. Openness is a very human thing, right? It's a, it's something that, that we're we're being open and asking you questions, right? And you can be open when you're dealing with a problem and you don't know how to solve it and want to be open about who you can enlist to resolve it. Um, so I, I, I feel like uh, you're making a, an excellent point there. I just th thought I'd throw in on, on top of that, transparency gets confused with openness, a scrum value. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so and, and openness and transparency relate to each other. Often when I talk with people about the scrum values, they would say like transparency. I'm like, yeah, you know what? Transparency is very important in scrum, but that's more like sort of, um, as a basis, a foundation upon which we're going to do inspection adaptation. So transparency serves inspection and adaptation. Yeah. You know, we could do this forever. And, yeah. and it's such a it's such a pleasure to get to talk to talk about Scrum with you. Um, you certainly are a an amazing Scrum caretaker. Um, but I think we've hit our time box. My glass is empty. Todd, how are you? Yeah, I'm empty in my uh, saved water drink beer glass. And so as as being good scrum practitioners, we respect the time box. But again, Gunther, it's just such a pleasure to be able to 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 glean these insights from you, to to learn from you. And and thank you for your your efforts as a scrum caretaker. Um, Todd and I certainly uh, acknowledge and know that that we have these joyful careers, that we get joyful work because of a lot of the work that that you did early on uh, when you were partnered up with Ken. And that the work you continue to do uh, through your blog, your writings, like I think we've both have gone through your book many, many times. Um, and it's just really, an, it's an honor and a, a pure pleasure to get to to trade uh, these ideas with you. Great. Then, then, then you'll be maybe, I don't know, maybe probably happy to know that I'm writing a next book for myself on Scrum. So you already know that I was writing on the 97 things every Scrum practitioner should know book. Yep. Thank, thank you both for contributing an article. Well, thank but, you for having us. That yeah, helped me ma make the 97 because that was an awful high number. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but still, I, but it, it, I'm, I'm working on a, a next book about Scrum again. Awesome. So, uh, tell us try, a, bit, a bit about try, it. Try to go beyond my Scrum pocket guide. So uh, Awesome. By, by the way, but I always have a round list. So if you want to have a look at it, that's my book. Yeah. And you just came out with a second edition for that fairly recently, right, Gunther? Yeah, it, yeah, recent, it's what you call recently, a year ago. A year ago, yeah. Early, early 2019, so uh, January, February. Yeah, I updated it, not structurally, 
Um, a lot of language terminology because you know the way I explain Scrum is also evolving. Nothing ever is fixed, so I uh, felt like updating it. And it, it took me several years to convince, not convince myself, to find out, oh, I'm still writing about Scrum and still finding new perspective, new angles, new whatever. Yeah. And I, I, I'm sort of reaching, I, I've reached the point that I think, oh yeah, I could, I could produce a next book, a second book. And the 97 Things book helped me sort of get to that point. So it bought me some time to actually do that. So I, I hope I'll be, it, it's sort of scary because I've got a lot of positive feedback from around the world, keeps coming over that strange little book that I wrote. So I'm now facing sort of the huge expectations. <laughs> when, I, when I wrote this book, it was by accident. I had no plans to write a book. It just happened. No expectations, just worked really hard. I'm amazed that after six years, it's still going going so well and people are so positive about it. So that's sort of additional. I now know what I'm facing. <laughs> yeah, we know that uh, fairly well, having just finished ours. So, yeah. and, and we can't wait to, to see what you come up with in the new one. And you have the um, 90, is it 97? That's coming out sometime this year. Yeah, it should be, it should be available uh, before summer. Awesome. Which is, uh, more than six months ahead of the schedule that the publisher had in mind. Imagine. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, Gunther, I actually want to, I don't know if you realize this or not, but um, I actually met you for the first time in 2015 at mm -hmm. the um, SPS workshop in Boston before I was a PST. Oh, okay. um, and so uh, I actually largely thank you. And I had a side conversation with you for, for quite some time during that. And uh, Rich Hundhausen are the primary reason I'm a Scrum.org trainer. So oh, thank you. And that was, uh, you probably welcome. don't remember back that's, I mean, five years ago to me is like like 30 years because I can't remember yeah. anything. You, you didn't have a beard by then, right? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I didn't have hair at that point either. Um, but okay. I, 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 I didn't have a beard by then either. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So thank you. And oh, thank you're you welcome. for your time. Welcome. Thank, Thank you, you very much. That's sort of very humbling feedback. Yeah, it's, it was awesome. Well, all right, guys. Thanks for doing this. Uh, again, Gunther, we really just, I mean, it, it's a shame to stop it, but uh, this will be, I think this is episode four, right, Todd? Yeah, it is. So we're going we're gonna to call this one complete. Uh, we're never finished. We just have completed <laughs> this latest increment. Yeah. Uh, we'll be back uh, hopefully next week with another Craft Brewed Agile. For the, the viewers out there, thank you for sticking with us. Um, glad you're enjoying these. We've already gotten some great feedback. We haven't even promoted them yet. Um, so please keep the notes coming. Let us know who you want us to talk to. Who should we share a beer with? What kind of questions can we ask? Because we're here to serve uh, the wider audience. All right. But with that said, Todd, the, uh, the Bad Elmer's Porter lived up to its name. It was actually, it was really good. So Indiana representing the beer community, the craft beer community again. Well done, uh, Upland Brewing. Uh, really enjoyed it. Yeah, you, and you know what? I got to be honest with you. Maple, coconut, lemon, milkshake, IPA. This thing was delicious. It sounds like a lot of really weird things mixed together, but tired hands knows how to, knows how to make a beer. So, awesome. Yeah. All right, until next time, buddy. Uh, yeah. This is another episode of Craft Root Agile. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Gunther. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye.